we should we should start like a third rail counter or something right. for the number of times people call something a third rail on this Good, podcast. But they're not wrong though. No, it's it's all third rails. Everything's a third rail. Yeah. yeah. Well, in, yeah. in this case, I feel like it's really appropriate because we are talking about rail oriented. <laughs> That's right. Housing. So yes. I actually think this has the the, the best moral and political claim to yes. a third rail issue. Very yeah. electric debate. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I am Matt Levin, data journalist with Cal Matters. That is Liam Dillon. You see how I changed it up? Wow. Yes, it's me. <laughs> Liam, who do you work for? I work for the Los Angeles Times. Everyone already knows that. Today on the podcast, enviros and housing, what I'm calling a complicated love affair. How, did, how does that title that fit works. with you? Yeah, I like it. I like it. Good job. We will be talking about uh, SB 827 and specifically the Sierra Club, somewhat surprising opposition to it, at least surprising to some. And uh, for our guest this week, we have... We have Ethan Elkind, who's uh, the head of the climate program at uh, UC Berkeley School of Law, who has written a lot about uh, how climate change goals interact with housing issues across the state and also has taken a pretty robust support position on Senate Bill 27, which again is legislation introduced by... Scott Weiner from San Francisco, uh, which would allow tremendously large uh, housing growth or compared to what we have now in um, in areas that are, that are surrounded by transit. Uh, we're also going to take this opportunity to kind of broaden out this discussion about how environmental issues and housing intersect. Um, and they intersect a lot. They do. Yeah. And I uh, and it's really, um, in my view, inexorably linked Um we should we should do we should do one SAT word per uh, per podcast. And yeah, so. that one was more SAT than GRE. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So. Um, also, a quick plug: uh, both Liam and I will be hosting some type of panel um, for an event here in Sacramento, sponsored by Cap Weekly, looking at housing, the housing crisis in California. That'll be happening Thursday, February eighth. I believe it's open to the public. <laughs> so if it is, come on down. If not, be sure to check it out. I think they typically televise those two on Cal Channel, which I'm sure all of you are glued to. Well, the, since if you, Quantico went off the air, if you if you can't get enough of our voices, this is a way to see our voices and and faces, which I'm sure is an improvement, maybe uh, over what your over your podcast experience. Yeah, maybe. Uh, not for me, but for Liam, for sure. Well, that's nice of you. Yeah. yeah. Um, but first. Our avocado of the week. Is it of the week or is it? So we had some pushback on this on Twitter. Now that we're taping this every two weeks, um, should this be the avocado of the fortnight? Yeah, which I really love. Okay, let's let's do that then. Okay. So avocado of the fortnight. Yeah, I wish you mispronounced fortnight too. That would be perfect. I, I don't know how to do that. I don't know. <laughs> it's a tougher one. Um, <laughs> a, our look at uh, the absurd or whimsical uh, housing story of, of the past two weeks. Um, and we got an okay one uh, for for this episode. Not, not, not as whimsical as I would have hoped, um, but it does give us an opportunity to talk about uh, Jerry Brown. Um, so, Liam, what, what do we have for the avocado? Yeah, the so, Fortnite? you know, the governor gave his last, this is the governor's last year, gave his last State of the State speech, uh, you know, uh, last week, or at least last week as we're taping this. Um, and he talked about a lot of stuff. He talked about uh, what he's learned. Pensions. Uh, pensions, what he's learned as being governor the for environment. two terms, uh, the, all the things that Matt's saying. Um, <laughs> but, you know, not a word, not a word about housing. So the, the way this works is um, Brown's press office will send out a copy of the speech, right? Um, and he – Brown is one of those guys that will often ad lib, and he as he did during the, the speech. So, you know, I still watched it, and I was like, okay, is he – because when he was rattling off some of his uh, – legislative accomplishments, right? This is his last state of the state. Right. A lot of people, even though the governor is not a fan of um, talking about his legacy, people viewed this, and I think rightly so, as his legacy speech. Oh, certainly. And he talked about the big projects that are still undone. This is high the speed high speed rail, rail and the, the twin the water, tunnels project. Exactly, exactly yeah. Um, and so I'm just kind of sitting there waiting for him to, you know, he could have, there was a legis- there was a housing package passed last year, right? right. He could have referenced it, right. but uh, but no. 
Yeah, and again, this is not just like, obviously everyone listening to this is a housing nerd, right, or at least an aspiring housing nerd, uh, but this is not just something that like only housing nerds care about. I mean, that California has the highest poverty rate in the country, and the primary driver of that is housing costs. And so this is not some esoteric concern. Um, this is like central to how the state is right now. And um, and I think, you know, part of the problem uh, here is that uh, despite what, what got passed last year, um, uh, housing has really never been a significant priority for him. Um, and he hasn't done, he and the legislature haven't done a ton to address the issue. How fair do you think uh, criticisms are of his administration's failure to tackle the problem? So I think I'm going to hedge. Um, I, you know, I think um, I think that's right for this question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know we often talk about um, what priorities are mm-hmm. and how the priorities of the people in charge drive what the policy ends up being. And so he decided to have other things as his priorities. And you could argue that the things he decided to have as his, pri- as his priorities, uh, this, this certainly the state of the budget when he first got into office and all the red ink the state was drowning in. Um, the climate change uh, uh, issues, which he put, you know, at the forefront of what it is that he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, um, uh, those being the kind of principal things that I think he'll be known for, that's what he decided to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And then housing was not among those things. And you have a limited amount of time. And these are the things you prioritize for whatever reasons that you to, to, to decide to do that. And you could argue about it, but this is what happened. Yep. Um, and I think it's also important to keep in mind when he first came into office, the state of housing in California, while the fundamentals were still uh, kind of what they are now, was it was a very different picture, right? We were still recovering from the Great Recession, the mortgage crisis, and the all mortgage those crisis, exactly, and all those sorts of exactly. things. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, the, the median price of a home in California dipped dramatically in the first few years of his administration. Now we're kind of almost back up where we used to be. And certainly rents are kind of much more astronomical than they were. But, right. you know, just within his his tenure here, his eight years, things have changed pretty dramatically, pretty quickly. Absolutely. Um, but I, I think it's also worth emphasizing that the fundamentals, as you say, really haven't. I mean, there was yes. a housing shortage when he came into office. There's a housing shortage that's worse now, uh, yes. given the job growth uh, that we've had. Also, there was a funding shortage when he came in, um, and the funding shortage is worse, worse. Is worse now, yes. um, given the end of redevelopment, some of the end of some of some, some federal funds. And so- um, yes. I'm glad you mentioned redevelopment, or otherwise we would have got an angry tweet or an email. Um, so one of the uh, achievements that he did kind of trumpet in his secretary of Secretary in his uh, state of the state speech um, was his achievements around climate change, which has always been a top priority of uh, Governor Brown, um, which brings us to our number of the week. Um, and our number of the week is very much like a, a, a Sesame Street type number of the week. This I'm going to push for us to bring back more real numbers, but I think this number works. What's the number of the week this week, Liam? Three. Let's just let that sink in for a second. And why is the number of the week three this week? Because, Matt, we're living in a world where we have a three-legged stool. Um, and nothing more really needs to be said. I think we no, can just we wrap can the just podcast home, right. right there yes, and everyone yeah. knows. So, What's this metaphor that you're obliquely referencing? So the stool, Matt, think of a stool and think of how that stool would have three legs to support it. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the, the broad outline here that we're going for. Uh-huh. Um, well, this is important because when we talk about climate change and our and our state's climate goals, and believe me, I'm gonna I'm gonna wind quickly to the three-legged stool. Um, but <laughs> r- right now, the state has a, in, a passed law, law that says we need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 40 percent below 1990 levels by 2030. And we've tried to figure out ways to, like, make that more concrete, um, but it's really hard to do. And so we'll just say that that's, like, really ambitious, right? And so in order to be able to do that, the primary driver of our greenhouse gas emissions is our transportation sector, basically people driving and cars driving. So not the electricity grid, not oil refineries. These things are important, but not as important as the transportation grid. And so in order to reduce carbon emissions in the transportation sector, there are three things you can do, three parts of this stool. 
So the first seems obvious, um, electric cars, right? You know, you have, you electrify the fleet that reduces carbon emissions. Yeah. The second is, you know, you're not going to, no matter how many electric cars you put on the road or try to put on the road right now, it's not, you're not going to wipe out all the cars that people have. But what you can do for the existing cars is deal with gasoline. And so you can reduce the amount of carbon that is in gasoline. And so that's the second leg of the school, kind of dealing with the gas issue. And the it, it's fair to say the administration has been pretty strong in to uh, continue this overwrought metaphor, uh, building and strengthening those two portions of the stool. The, the, the strength of the two legs of the stool is strong, very strong like stool legs. Nice. I feel like you're doing your own State of the Union right now, but <laughs> continue. Go ahead. Right. But the, so the third leg of the stool is, oh, okay, so we electrifying the fleet. Great. We're, we're reducing the amount of carbon and gas. Great. Where are people driving to and from? Where are people driving to and from? And can we get people not driving? Because you don't put any carbon in the air if you're, or much less if you're walking to work, right? And so like that's the third leg of this. And so how do you get people to walk to work or walk to where they shop or, or deal with deal with this and that's putting houses near jobs and near transit and near stores and so that's the sort of the critical third part of this the third leg in the stool that needs to be addressed in, in order for this transportation element uh the, the largest contributor to our greenhouse gas emissions in order for that to be to reduced in a way that that allows us to meet the goals these very ambitious goals that we've set and how are we doing on that leg of the stool not well not 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 well uh-uh no <laughs> So, um, you know, and and it is actually quite remarkable um, the things that we will need to do to burnish this uh, third leg of the stool. Um, you know, I did a I did a large piece on this issue uh, last spring, and the amount of development that we're going to need to see in uh, already dense urban areas or areas around transit and jobs would need to be, uh, according to one researcher that I quoted, a building boom in these areas not seen anywhere in the United States since before World War II. And so yeah. we're talking this doesn't happen. This hasn't happened. And this is something that, in order, to, according to all the research, needs to happen in order for the state to meet its climate goals. We're talking, uh, this isn't an endorsement or anything, but we're talking Newsom levels of construction, I would say. Right. Sure. And, and not only Newsom levels of construction, and we're referring to this sort of ambitious, also ambitious plan by, or proposal by a gubernatorial candidate, Gavin Newsom, to build three and a half million homes. Which Liam uh, has repeatedly subtly derided as fairly unrealistic. Uh, unless, uh, without seeing whatever he wants to do to meet that goal. But it's not just building the houses, it's building them in a particular place. You can't, this, this means you can't build these these millions of homes that we need to deal with the affordability issue um, in sprawl. They have to be yeah. in places where people already live. And that is going to cause fundamental, if we decide to do it, going to cause fundamental changes in how we live. And that's where building, even during the building boom that preceded the housing crisis, built, there wasn't building going on in those exact areas. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, it's, it's a really fundamental shift. Yeah. And so it, it would seem that in order for, I mean, environmental groups um, like the stool, right? They, they are relying on the stool. They're sitting on the stool. Yeah, that's good. Let's keep going. I mean, like they're sitting on the stool, and they but they love the two strong legs of the stool. There you go. And but the third leg, the shaky leg that we, you know, the kind of the leg that when you have to like put a coaster under it to make sure it's kind of still there, you know, to yeah. make sure that that, yeah. that things aren't falling over, yeah. right? Because you can't that, afford nice furniture because you're paying too much for rent. All the things, right? And so that's the leg that there's some divide in the environmental community, and and you can see this and you can understand this because the environmental movement sort of grown in California and birthing in California in the late 60s and 1970s, and this is when this sort of really came to the fore, um, was about stopping things. Yeah. Like, building is bad because we like green and pastoral and rural and, like, putting stuff in these areas is like, a, 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 you know, they, they pave paradise the parking lot, like, all that stuff, right? Like, like that's the stuff that the environmental movement was born to stop. Uh -huh. So it's, it's a, a saying of no to things. And I think what this sort of um, uh, sort of newer look at what environmentalism could be and some would argue should be in the future is no 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 uh, we need to we understand that the build things need to be built we just need to build them in certain places and so that that sort of switch from nothing anywhere at all because uh, that's bad to 
yeah, a ton, but a ton over here, I think um, is exposing some real fissures and perhaps some generational fissures and, and other kinds of fissures in the environmental movement. So let's talk about those those fissures briefly. Could you kind of set the stage in terms of who are the major environmental advocacy groups influencing housing legislation now and kind of where they fall on that spectrum you're describing? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that this is kind of a, kind of evolving um, and I don't want to, uh, you know, I'm going to leave an, an important environmental group out, I'm sure, when I go through this. And so please forgive me. Um, but, you know, you have the like, conservation voters, you have uh, a PCL, you have the Sierra Club, you have the Natural Resources Defense Council. And these are sort of some of the institutional environmental groups that we've seen um, involved in, in debates over climate change and also a lot of these, these land use issues that we're talking about. You also have a lot of these... Uh, uh, environmental equity groups that are growing. That's um, right. Um, environmental justice. Environmental groups. justice groups are sort of shorthand for them, and so they're um, beginning increasingly, kind of finding their footing in in the capital, and have been really engaged on a lot of the climate goals and cap and trade discussions that we've had. And I think those yeah. groups are particularly interesting because they are representing um, the interests of low income communities that are facing some of the gentrification and displacement pressures, correct? Um, well, and you're completely right. And, and the same same populations that have been consistently screwed over exactly. by decades of of housing and transportation policy. Exactly. That segregated neighborhoods, that dis- disinvested neighborhoods, that cut na- put highways through neighborhoods, yep. and have a strong and well-deserved mistrust of government solutions to uh, the problems that that, that, that exists there. Yeah. You built a uh, freeway through my neighborhood 40 years ago. Now you want to build a high-rise condo. I, exactly. And it's completely understandable why folks would think that that's a bad idea. Um, so that's kind of the lay of the land in terms of uh, the the interest groups here at the state and local level um, that influence right. uh, the, kind of the housing portion of the three-legged stool. Yes. Um, let's talk about um, that kind of generational divide um, when it comes to a couple specific legislators. Yeah, so I think this is best uh, related, you know, in the story I did last year on, on this issue, I spoke with uh, former state senator Fran Pavley, um, a Democrat who rep- rep- represented a, a wealthy area outside of Los Angeles, and she was the, the author of uh, both bills that set the state's sort of very aggressive uh, climate change goals. And uh, in that position, um, uh, you know, uh, came down very hard on the auto industry needs to cut their cut the gas and needs to electrify their fleet really fast, and the ag industry needs to deal with all the methane that's that's there from cows and all these sorts of things, and is very hard, very strict um, arguments against sort of really cracking down on how they operate. But you ask her about land use issues and, and local control issues and city issues and parking uh, things like that, and she's like, no, whoa, 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 like local communities know best and I don't care essentially she's what she told me I don't care if they make the quote unquote wrong decisions for the climate they know their community best and they're the ones who have to live with it and they're the ones who uh, deal with not having to find a parking spot and so they should be allowed to be in control to the point where she you know was not supportive of of a bill that most other Democrats and the legislature supported a couple of years ago to uh, sort of speed the way for um, backyard units, granny flats, whatever word you want to use mm-hmm. um, to be built, which a lot of folks see as kind of a, an inobtrusive way to add some density to, mm-hmm. to local communities. Her point was, well, these communities have a right to, to fear um, or be concerned about parking or other issues that would result from that. And so here you have, again, someone who has been around for a long time, central in the state's sort of climate change regime and yep. authoring and shaping it, um, having a very different position how she takes on industry to how she takes to sort of local local community control. Um, speaking of that, um, let's talk about SB 827. Um, and we should note um, that we did reach out to the Sierra Club. We would have loved to have um, a representative from the Sierra Club as our guest this week. No offense to Ethan. We'd love to have both of them. Um, and they declined our uh, request to um, uh, be on the podcast. Yeah, and that's because uh, the, the, the head of the Sierra Club, California here, Catherine Phillips, told me that um, they're doing a white paper on yep. their uh, sort of outlining their views on on housing and infill development, which should be really interesting when it comes out. Yes, I look forward to that. Indeed. First, let's just recap again 
Uh, I know you did this at the introduction, but let's go into a little bit more detail what actually SB 827 does and why it's getting so much publicity, both here in California, but then also nationally. That, that's right. And so I think uh, Senator Weiner, when he introduced this, um, introduced this sort of for this this sort of twin reason. And he sort of cloaked the the housing argument for this. We need to we need to build a lot more housing to deal with housing shortage for with the environmental you know, argument too is that would well that has to be in a certain place, and so yep. what he's saying is that you know uh, he's basically the state would take away uh, almost entire local control over zoning in region in you know areas between a quarter and a half mile from um, sort of major transit stops uh, to allow for development uh, up to um, four to eight stories um, yep. or a minimum of four to eight stories yep. depending on where it is uh, in those communities, and so, so that's a that's a dramatic difference from what we see, and it would ban single family zoning near transit. So just yeah. to just to kind of break this down, if you're in um, the, if you live within a half mile of the Walnut Creek BART station, right, right, mm-hmm. which is a affluent suburb of the Bay Area, right. um, the Walnut Creek can't say you can only build single family homes single here. family homes. Right. It, it's got to be um, the developer can choose actually to build Correct. lower density stuff, right, but the the city can't say you can only build single family homes. Correct. Um, just wanted to personalize. I know people in Walnut Creek. So. Well, good. Huge Sh- listener base there. Shout out to Walnut Creek. The Dubsy. Yeah. Um, uh, where, where were we? <laughs> well, we had just explained. 827. Yes. That's right. Um, so, so a lot very, of ten- very big yeah, deal. A lot of very big deal because it goes in, in California and, 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 and around. Very big deal in California because it, it's a very aggressive move for the housing uh, uh, shortage, a very aggressive move for environmental, uh, also a very aggressive move attacking this sort of state-local relationship because land use has traditionally been seen as the province of, of cities and counties. And this is a very aggressive move by the state into that. And so all these things. Um, uh, make it high profile here. Um, it's also high profile around the country, I yep. think, because uh, of of sort of the outlines that we have uh, raised at the beginning of the podcast, which is how the state's going to meet its climate change goals and deal with the, sh- the shaky third leg of the stool, um, and how uh, it's going to deal with with housing costs, uh, cost which are out of control. And so here's this sort of um, a radical uh, approach. Radical approach. Radical approach. Yeah, uh, that 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 a lot of national commentators have argued. Is a sort of silver bullet yes. uh, to, to, to go after both things. And so I think you could see why um, you're attracting the amount of attention that it is. Um, and uh, some of the attention that it got was from the uh, aforementioned Sierra Club of California. Um, yeah, yeah so, so, just, so just to put in context here, we're still, uh, for listeners, we're very, very early yes, in, exactly. the, in the process for, for sort of the schoolhouse rocks, how Bill becomes a law in Sacramento. Um, we're not at the point really, um, you know, we're still- Have in, they scheduled a hearing on it? No. And so we're not, you know, these hearings don't happen yet. I mean, you know, the, the, this thing has to be passed by late summer if it's going to get passed, and that's when the legislation actually does get passed. And so we're still in the first committee hearing process. We're not even there in the first house. So it you know, again, pass the Senate, Senate bill, then it would have to pass the assembly and then it would have to go back to the Senate if there are any changes and then get signed by the governor. And so there's a lot of changes that can happen throughout that process. Is, and that's a, typically is what happens. In the As many of you process. probably remember from the housing package. Exactly. Yeah. So we're not even at the point where there's a committee hearing scheduled yet on this bill. Yes, um, which and means it, there's lots of room for compromise. Well, but yeah. But uh, and, maybe. And, and also, you know, there could not be. I mean, there are a lot of bills yes. that that don't even go to a committee hearing because the opposition is is is. is so strong or doesn't sort of work or all those sorts of stuff, right? So I, I would be surprised at this point, if, given the high profileness of this bill, if this bill didn't have a committee hearing. But um, it is still very rare for uh, groups to come out, unless they're like the sponsor of the bill or the, or the behind the bill, to come out and say, we support or oppose this legislation full stop. Yeah. And the Sierra Club uh, came out came out and said that. I mean, a letter they wrote um, in mid-January, they said, you know, uh, we oppose this measure and urge you to remove this bill from consideration. And so not even we oppose it. Here are some changes we'd like to see, but we oppose it and you should do away with this. What a bad idea. Yeah. Let's move on to what was actually in the letter. Yeah. Um, did which of those arguments that they laid out against 827 – which did you think was kind of the most meritorious? Well, so they're, they're interesting um, arguments. I think one of the more the, so the top argument they had was look a political argument. A political argument yeah. is like look, it's hard enough to 
to get yeah. people to say yes to transit anyway. Yes. And so but if you're linking transit, if you say not only are you going to get a transit station in your neighborhood, which you're you going to get a like, high rise, you're going to get a high rise too. It's going to really piss people and off. Really piss, right. Exactly. And so like that's interesting. Yes. It's, it, it's like, well, look, I mean, we need we need to push transit. But if you bring dent the density with the transit, it just adds another argument for people to say no, which is kind of that's an interesting, yeah. interesting argument. I because, mean, that, that yeah. resonated as fair point to me. Yeah. I mean, uh, yes. I mean, I think I think you could argue, well, um, so what? I, I, well, pe- people who don't like transit in exactly. their neighborhood, adding another argument to the 10 arguments they already have about transit. Exactly. Uh, so you have 11 instead of 10, right? Yes. Um, so, you know, yes. But I, I think to, to your point and to their point, um, people don't like density or a lot of folks don't like density. And so adding and adding the density could 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 hinder potentially uh, some of the yes. some of the politics of this, um, you know, and and it's interesting, too. They talk about um, uh, displacement concerns. Yeah. And this is not something that um, should be alighted over. Um, and and I, 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 I'm sure that as this bill worked its way through the process, you and I will dedicate a whole podcast to equity uh, concerns about um, about this legislation because, you know, when you upzone, you often increase land value. And when you increase land value, that, that only encourages or helps encourage a certain kind of development to go in. Yeah. And so they bring up that point. Um, and uh, it's interesting, though, because that's not a purely environmental concern. That's right. Right. And yeah. so that's an argument that, you know, they make in opposition in opposition to this as well. So yeah. why does the Sierra Club care about displacement and gentrification? Well, they argue that that they care about it because it extends the amount of time that people would need to um, drive to go to work or, or, or those sorts of things. Getting back to the, you know, the three legged stool. Yes. Right. Yes. So they're they're on the roads for longer. Therefore, um, you know, uh, spewing out more emissions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what was in the letter. Uh, there, there were a couple other uh, points, uh, some of which we address in the interview. Yeah. Um, involving kind of uh, the marriage of this bill potentially with SB 35 and ways to get around the California Environmental Quality Act, which they had concerns about. Um, I, I'm curious, uh, where, where do you think opposition to this bill kind of goes from here? So I think you're going to see you're obviously going to see opposition from local government. Yeah, that's obvious, right? Um, and, I, and that will be very strong and fervent, and all of the things. Um, you will see some environmental opposition uh, from uh, groups, the Sierra Club, and groups like it. And I yeah. think you're also going to see again this sort of. I think the real interesting, the real interesting opposition is going to be on on the equity side, and, and that's one reason why I think it's good for us that we're talking about the environmental stuff right now and dealing with the equity, uh, you know, a little bit as we go on. Because I'm really curious to see how that goes out because. The Proponents of this bill argue it's a huge win for uh, low-income communities, um, whereas opponents, um, uh, you know, argue no, 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 this is a huge gentrification bomb, or that kind of language has been used to, yeah. to argue against this. And so um, that evolution and where certain groups who are who advocate for for those communities end up on this and how that shapes the debate, I think, is going to be the, in my view, the most fascinating aspect of this moving forward. So, do you have a feeling about how environmental justice groups are going to shake out on this, and can you read anything from how they viewed some of the uh, previous housing legislation. Can, can you read the tea leaves? N- God, I hate that. N- no, I, I don't. Uh, okay. Because I think it's really in flux. Well, I mean, we should well, talk to them we, for yeah, another podcast. Well, I'm sure we, and we will. And you could sort of see why this is the hardest one. I mean, you know, like like you buy a new car and it happens to be electric. Like that's not a huge disruption in your life. Right. Yeah, especially for those people who could typically afford those cars. Yeah, but even if you get the subsidy for, to allow, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, so like, like that's not a, like I, I drove yesterday and now I drive today in a different car, mm-hmm. right? But the changing nature of your neighborhood and the changing na- nature of what your your primary investment in life is, yeah, you, you know, your house or, or the changing nature of like what you're going to do for your rents when you're already struggling with with paying so much for that and how and your neighbors that have been there forever. I mean, these are really, really, really like to the heart of like existence kind of changes that we're talking about. Yeah, much ha- harder than whether you you know the con- the percentage of carbon when you when you go to the gas station to fill up your car, yeah. you know. Yep. So um, here we are. Here we are. Yeah. Um, and with that, let's talk with uh, Ethan. We're here with Ethan Elkind, who is the director of the climate program at uh, UC Berkeley School of Law, and who has long written and thought about a lot of the issues we're talking about today on on housing issues and the environment. So, Ethan, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no, happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. 
So last year you did a, a, a pretty in-depth study um, looking at land use issues and with respect to the state's um, climate change goals and how vital they were um, and how connected they were. Can you talk about what you found in that study? Sure. Well, uh, we looked at basically different scenarios for how California could grow uh, for residential development in particular. Uh, and we teamed up with Next10 and the UC Berkeley Turner Center. Um, so we had some good partnership on that. And it was really an effort to try to think about where new residential development through 2030 really ought to go in terms of the economic impacts and in terms of uh, the climate impacts. So we modeled out a couple different, actually three different scenarios for growth. Uh, one, the business as usual, sort of assuming that we're going to provide enough housing for projected population growth through 2030. Uh, based on how we're currently building homes in terms of their location and the types of homes. And then we had a sort of moderate scenario and then a more aggressive scenario. And when I say aggressive, what I mean is imagining that you know, most of that housing, or really all of that housing, is going to be in what we call the low vehicle miles traveled area. So places in the state right now where people don't drive as much on average as the rest of the state does because they have access to transit and jobs and retail and services close by. Uh, so like, or so like areas cities. that are really close yeah. to uh, rail transit. Yeah, so like mainly like, like already developed city areas, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And yeah. areas, uh, even if they're not totally developed yet, they're, they're close to transit and therefore, you know, presumably it would be low VMT. So, you know, the bottom line is that... Uh, sort of more aggressive infill-type scenario uh, would result in higher economic growth, more jobs, and significant environmental benefits uh, to the tune of 1.79 million metric tons of greenhouse gas emissions uh, per year, which is equivalent of taking 378,000 cars off the road. And, you know, this is just for new residential development, too. So, you know, we're not taking into account you know, the, presumably the commercial development that would also follow that residential development and how that new development would also benefit existing residents in these communities by providing them with, you know, more, more commercial development nearby that they could walk to, more jobs nearby. Uh, so we think that the actual environmental benefits overall are far higher uh, with that scenario. So I think this, these findings now are actually really relevant. I mean, they, I'd like to think they're relevant anyways, but they're really relevant now with SB 827, yeah. Uh, which, you know, as I'm sure listeners probably are aware, would allow more housing to be built near transit. And so we, our study kind of coincidentally helps to provide some, some hard numbers in terms of the economic benefits and the environmental benefits of that kind of scenario. Yeah. So before we, we jump into that particular bill, because I, I, we definitely want to talk about that, can, can you uh, – so how likely do you think, like, the aggressive scenario you modeled is to come to pass, A, and B – if we do that, does that mean, like, yay, we're going to meet our climate goals? Well, our climate goals require a host of action on other areas, too. Uh, we need sure. to continue decarbonizing our electricity grid. We need to make sure that our transportation sector also switches to clean fuels, ideally uh, electricity, from a decarbonized electricity sector. So we need progress on a whole bunch of fronts. But in terms of the land use impact, it really impacts you know, our whole climate fight in so many different ways. I mean, just as an example, I mean, we, we, you know, we talked about reduced need for driving, which is important from an environmental and climate perspective. But people who live in more compact homes, they tend to use less energy, less water, which also has a reduced environmental footprint. It also takes pressure off building new sprawl-type development over open space and agricultural land, which, uh, which functions as a carbon sink. So by not building on those lands, we're actually able to sequester more carbon uh, on these working landscapes. So that's another important in- environmental benefit from having it. But, you know, to answer your question about kind of how likely this is, well, you know, we, we didn't label it business as usual for a reason, because our current business as usual trajectory is not taking us into this sort of environmentally and economically desirable outcome. Uh, and I don't think it's, it's a function of uh, where the market is, because I think there's a lot of demand. And we've seen this over and over again in, in consumer surveys. There's a lot of demand to live in a walkable neighborhood, to have a house that's near things on foot or on transit. So people want to live in these communities. The problem is that from a policy perspective, we are not allowing enough of these types of convenient walkable neighborhoods to be built. 
Uh, and that's really the problem, and that's what our report, you know, to some extent highlights, that we're not going to achieve this scenario on our own without uh, policy interventions to help us actually get there. Yeah. Just one more thing before we jump into to the policy of 827. Um, I've tried in my reporting on this to, tr- to really emphasize how communities may change in how they look. And, and I've often found it hard to, to, to I ask everyone that I talk to, can you tell me, like, you have a community, you know, surrounding in, in a, the west side of L.A. now that's primarily single-family home um, uh, near transit. How w- What would that community look like if, if you were to have the kind of development that you say is needed to, to, to meet some of the, the climate challenges that we have? Uh-oh. Well, you know, uh, you know, we had uh, council member from L.A., Paul Koretz, talk about how this is going to unleash Dubai right. on, on west L.A., basically, um, you know, with these giant high-rises that we see in Dubai. Of course, he admitted he hadn't actually read the bill didn't realize that it really just capped buildings from being any lower than, well, I guess capped isn't the right word, but it wouldn't allow buildings lower than eight stories within a quarter mile of transit and no lower than about five stories a uh, half mile out from major transit. So the Dubai thing was, you know, is kind of a, a, a bogus type of, of argument around this. And the fact is we don't need real, you know, tall high-rise spires around our transit networks. I mean, we actually see very densely populated parts of California, which is, you know, three-story buildings. Uh, so, you know, you take San Francisco, for example. You know, much of San Francisco is very densely populated, but a lot of these neighborhoods only have, you know, three-story buildings. But the key thing there is that, you know, they're, they're often uh, very compact and uh, attached type units uh, and, you know, have smaller units overall. So uh, you can actually achieve pretty good density and pretty good population base to support transit, to minimize the sort of carbon footprint and traffic, uh, et cetera, without going way up, uh, you know, up into, the, uh, up into the sky like a high-rise. Uh, now, SBA 27 does allow up to eight-story buildings, but, you know, in terms of the practical impact of that, assuming that were to go through, it's not like starting tomorrow, you know, the bulldozers come out and all these properties change over. I mean, in a lot of cases, uh, you know, you've got properties that where there really isn't much economic incentive to redevelop. Uh, the demand isn't there, perhaps, or just the costs of redeveloping are too high to justify the investment. And you also have, you know, property owners who may not want to sell. I mean, this would be something that would take place sort of gradually over time uh, as, you know, a property owner decides to sell and maybe, you know, a developer comes in and makes an offer to an adjoining property to redevelop both together. So this would be an organic kind of process. Um, so speaking of 827, uh, what was your reaction um, when you first learned of the Sierra Club's letter opposing the bill? Well, I was basically really annoyed. Um, <laughs> it's just the idea that an environmental group would come out against a bill that, you know, really for the first time in Sacramento could make a, a significant difference, uh, not just you know, on the environmental side, although that's just huge. But, you know, just from in terms of our housing shortage uh, that we face statewide, uh, the equity, the, you know, the economic impacts to low-income people from not having enough housing. So the idea that they would come out against it when it just seems like it otherwise should be so much within their sort of mission. And I know that the National Sierra Club has a policy to promote smart growth. Uh, it was just really unfortunate. And, and even worse, you know, there are reasons for opposing it, to me, just really didn't make any sense. Um, and seem kind of convoluted. Uh, but, you know, the, the, unfortunately, the Sierra Club doesn't have a, a great record, at least here in California, on smart growth. Uh, there are some of their individual chapters, like in San Francisco, have been pretty uh, outspoken in opposing new housing in these transit-rich areas. So I think kind of institutionally, the organization at the Sierra Club is just not really set up, um, you know, to, to promote smart growth. It's just kind of not, not really part of their fundamental DNA. Not to say that some of their concerns aren't legitimate. I mean, I think the concerns, particularly around displacement, uh, are important. Um, but, you know, to outright oppose the bill without suggesting, you know, some amendments that might, you know, address some of their concerns, uh, you know, that it was, it was just, you know, it was basically really annoying and, and too bad to see. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm hoping that other environmental groups won't, won't come to that same conclusion. So let's push a little bit on on some of their concerns, and maybe you can you can explain why you you, you believe that they're misplaced. Um, you, you know, you because they would argue that the, the the two major things that you that you said are beneficial about this bill that it promotes um, transit and also promotes um, sort of you know um, 
uh, or deals with some some equity concerns uh, in the in in the state and housing issues, they would say that they're that that, that that's fundamental for them. Um, so their first argument was. Uh, this could actually, by upzoning around transit stations, could increase um, opposition to, yeah. for, for, you know, from neighbors to having transit there, knowing that 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 w- you know, sort of what will come with transit. What 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 response do you have to that? Well, it, it sort of boils down to, you know, how much we want to leverage our existing transit networks versus how much we want to expand transit. Um, and I, we've got a, a, almost 500 st- uh, stations, rail transit stations right now in California, many of which are badly underutilized. So this is a way to leverage all the existing taxpayer dollars that have gone into building these rail lines. So I think first we want to just get the bang for the buck from the dollars we've already spent. And then secondly, in terms of extending transit lines, and Sierra Club specifically referenced the transit extension, rail transit out to the Sacramento airport, you know, if, if we're putting these through low-density communities that are going to be hostile to new growth, then these are exactly the areas we don't want to be putting expensive rail transit lines. Uh, in fact, I've been uh, uh, favoring a policy from transit agencies that San Francisco uh, MTC, uh, the Metropolitan Transportation Commission, has in place that would actually require these kinds of land use changes anytime a transit agency brings a new station to a community. So uh, this is something that we needed anyways. I mean, we, it's a waste of all that money to invest in transit, new transit, if we're not going to get the land use changes. And the fact is, you know, in the, back in the 70s and 80s when California started reintroducing transit, you know, a lot of these transit planners thought, oh, well, the land use changes will just happen on their own. Mm-hmm. They didn't foresee, because they weren't land use people, that Communities are going to react by downzoning around the station areas. We saw that happen in Rockridge. You know, we see single-family zoning in, uh, around the Expo light rail station. So uh, we don't see the land use changes happen. So we need a policy like this to ensure that if we're going to spend the taxpayer dollars on new transit lines, we're going to get the land use changes that make these investments cost-effective in the first place. So I, just, I don't get the sense Sierra Club has really even analyzed the numbers on how cost-effective a transit extension to Sacramento Airport is going to be, because it might very well be that you know, having bus-only lanes and shuttles to the airport might be a ton more cost-effective than exp- an expensive transit line out to the airport. So, yeah, my feeling is this is exactly the kind of policy we want to ensure we're not wasting our limited transit dollars on extensions into low-density areas. Uh, Ethan, I'm, I'm curious, you know, the California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA, is uh, obviously a, a four-letter word for uh, uh, many developers. Um, I'm curious, do you think any part of CEQA needs significant reform? Yeah, well, CEQA is the, the big boogeyman for developers, and you, you hear that complaint uh, over and over again. You know, I think uh, it's important to kind of have some factual level setting on CEQA, because if you actually look at the data on CEQA, you know, I mean, you hear developers complain about lawsuits. The fact is, lawsuits are actually incredibly rare, um, and uh, and you know, most of the time, CEQA is not an issue for projects. Uh, but you know, from a developer perspective, you know, you've got a new project. You are worried about this bomb that might hit you at the very end of the process, and that can potentially you know delay the project and cost you money and potentially sink the project. So it's this kind of scary thing lurking in the closet. So even if it doesn't. Uh, if you you know if you don't get sued, you're always mm-hmm. worried about it. So developers are very you know very focused on it. But like I said, I think the data show that uh, CEQA is not the, uh, the the major barrier to infill development that a lot of uh, certainly from the development community that they that they say it is. Do you um, think there's adequate data to make that judgment? Uh, so there are some interesting studies that have come out, look, putting litigation in context. Uh, the state of California just did a pretty comprehensive review of how many state projects are affected by CEQA, and it's, and it's almost negligible. Uh, similarly, the uh, Rose Foundation sponsored a uh, study that I, I helped sort of peer review that uh, also showed in terms of the building permits issue that litigation almost never happens. Now, I'm not someone who would say, therefore, that we don't have to worry about CEQA. I think it, you know, it is designed uh, to some extent to stop and, well, not to stop, but to slow projects. I mean, the, the point of it is to disclose impacts to the public, but the way that it is expanded, it does really leave uh, projects open to, to litigation if you have a motivated opponent. Um, so I think some reforms could be in order, but we also have a lot of reforms on the books. Uh, there already is a essentially a CEQA exemption for uh, smaller infill projects uh, that are near transit. Uh, we have some CEQA streamlining now on transportation impacts. That was uh, based on a law passed in 2013. Uh, that is that finally the regulations are being finalized now. 
so you know we're making progress in that way. I think there probably is. You know, there's more that could be done. I mean, from my perspective, you know, SB 827 kind of areas to me are just sort of by definition, uh, you know, really environmentally beneficial places to put housing. So I think, you know, those are the kinds of areas where you could really relax uh, CEQA review. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just one thing, other thing before we leave CEQA, I mean, you, you, you know, when they, we've, we've struggled with this, and I know Matt has and I have in terms of putting in context to, to some of the data, and that's probably why Matt you asked your question. Yep. It's like because you brought up the point that it's not necessarily the, the lawsuit itself it's the the fact that this is it's a constant negotiation about what what people are willing to accept without having to file the lawsuit, yeah. right? I mean, isn't isn't that the and it's really hard to quantify the kind of impact that 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 that, that would have? Yeah, and that's where I think we could use some further study. I mean, I actually think the the biggest impact of CEQA is not so much the litigation, but more the defensive project siting and defensive project design. Uh, that we'll see. I mean, I, I did a study when I was in law school looking at how effective some of the exemptions for affordable housing have been. And all the affordable housing developers that I talked to said, you know, we would never even choose a site for affordable housing where there was the threat of having to do a full environmental impact report mm-hmm. uh, under CEQA. Yeah. That, that would just be insane. So basically, developers are already trying to choose sites that they're much less likely to have to deal with a CEQA suit. Uh, and they also may be designing their projects to minimize the risks of litigation. Uh, so I think that is an impact that, that has gone unstudied uh, to some extent. Um, but, uh, but like I say, I think, you know, the problem is that this debate has been hijacked to some extent by some, you know, fairly kind of well-heeled big developers who, you know, have no uh, reason to support CEQA, um, but have sort of helped create the impression that CEQA is this, you know, this giant boogeyman that affects all sorts of infill projects up and down the state, and the data just doesn't, you know, does not show that. So Matt and I talked during our portion of the, of the, of the podcast earlier about sort of the, the, the change, I guess, that you're seeing in what environmental groups are, used to believe with respect to land use and what, the, what some of the other, what some groups are believing now, which is in the past, um, you know, the environmental position was no building anywhere at all is like the best, right? Like long, windy, green landscapes or whatever, pastoral, you know. Um, and now there are certain folks um, who would argue, no, we, we do have to build. Uh, we just need to build in a certain place, right? Um, and so can you sort of speak to that? Are you seeing any sort of fissures in, in the environmental movement with respect to that sort of dichotomy? And, and do you think that the Sierra Club issue plays into that? Yeah, I think Sierra Club's a good example of the dynamic that you're talking about. You know, the environmental movement began, as you say, as a way to stop things. I mean, that was the whole point of Sierra Club. You know, let's stop new dams, let's stop dirty power plants, let's stop sprawl development. So it was an anti kind of a thing, which when we're talking about bad industrial projects from an environmental perspective, uh, you know, that's, that is a benefit for the environment. But, you know, as we're worried about climate change, as we're worried about the housing shortage and what that does to, uh, to climate in terms of promoting sprawl, we, you know, environmental groups, if they care about climate change, they, they do need to pivot. And there's a difference, uh, you know, in a sense between being an environmentalist and being a climate hawk. Dave Roberts in, uh, in Vox actually did a nice piece on this recently. Uh, and that's a pivot that I think a lot of environmental organizations are, are struggling to make. Um, and uh, I think the land use smart growth issue is, is a good example of that, where, you know, Sierra Club has been in the business of stopping things, not in promoting the building of things. So it's definitely a tension in the environmental movement. Uh, and, uh, and I think we are seeing that play out in Sierra Club uh, with their opposition. I mean, other environmental groups, though, are more forward-thinking in terms of smart growth. I mean, uh, NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council, r- really stands out to me. They, they have a, a really strong record of trying to promote smart growth uh, and getting behind policies that really would help do that, not just, you know, stop sprawl and not just stop, you know, infill projects that they don't like. Mm-hmm. So I, I think you're seeing some, some pivot there. But ultimately, you know, the, the, the torch here is going to be carried not by environmental groups, but by uh, the YIMBY groups that, uh, that have sprung up, you know, a whole generation of people that is completely priced out of, uh, of, a, of a decent home in California. And that's really where the energy is now uh, in California politically. It's not on the environmental side, which, you know, especially an organization like Sierra Club, you know, it's made up, it's a member-based organization. A lot of their members are homeowners, have very little incentive to allow new development in their communities. And that's just kind of the unfortunate reality of it. You've talked a lot about how much you like SBA 27. What, what else, in your opinion, does the state need to do to um, deal with some of the fundamental housing and environmental challenges that it has? Well, I, 
I really do think this, this is the major one. The other thing that would help is if we focused our transportation dollars on, uh, on infill in, uh, infrastructure and on transit uh, and biking and pedestrian infrastructure. Um, we, need to, we need to shift where those transportation dollars go in the state. And part of the problem here is that half of the transportation dollars are not even controlled by the state of California. I mean, local governments end up providing half of the, of the dollars for transportation, and local governments have a huge amount of say over where, uh, where those transportation investments go. But, um, you know, if the state could sort of leverage its contribution of transportation dollars to ensure that all of it really is going uh, to, you know, walkable, bikeable infrastructure, transit infrastructure, and that, you know, the extent it's going to automobile infrastructure, it's only going to maintain our existing automobile infrastructure and not contributing to new expansion projects. I mean, that's the other big piece of it, uh, is making sure that we have, you know, systems like BART, like LA Metro, you know, are well-funded, uh, you know, as much as we see highways. Uh, being funded. I mean, it's always kind of killed me that if you want to build a new highway project, the federal government will come in and pay 90% of the cost, maybe 100%. But if you want to build a new transit extension, you know, you're on the hook for half of those, uh, half of those dollars, and the federal government maybe will contribute the other half. So our priorities have really been screwed up on the transportation side, and that has helped uh, drive, no pun intended, where our housing goes. So you know, mm. that infrastructure investment and a highway out to a sprawl area is going to make that sprawl development cheaper and, you know, more to build and, and more desirable, uh, for, you know, higher return for that developer. So likewise, if we can invest in our core transportation infrastructure uh, for walkable, bikeable communities, you know, that's an investment in infill housing as well. All right. Uh, I think we've met our uh, pun quota um, <laughs> for the interview segment of the podcast. Uh, anything else that you'd like to add, Ethan? No, I think we've covered it all. I mean, I all think right. that the real challenge here is just um, it's just the politics going forward. And, you know, going back to the Sierra Club's opposition, you know, I think the unfortunate dynamic the Sierra Club's opposition creates is it gives political cover uh, to essentially those, you know, those exclusionary uh, upscale homeowner forces, um, you know, that can now say, look, it's not just about me you know, wanting to keep, you know, new development out of my community. It's an environmental bad, because look at what the Sierra Club said. So that that's unfortunate. And also, you know, some of the advocacy around low-income renters has also kind of created political cover for people in Marin County to say, well, you know, it's actually not about the concern over my neighborhood. I'm actually suddenly very concerned about low-income communities now and worried what SBA 27 might do to them. So, you know, I think it'll be interesting going forward to see how this debate plays out. And I think even if it doesn't pass, at least it gives us a sense of what's needed and where the politics are right now. And I think, you know, this issue is not going away anytime soon. So the legislature is going to, the momentum to pass something like this is going to keep growing in the coming years. Um, Okay. Thank you so much, Ethan. We we appreciate you joining us. Sure. Anytime. Thank you for having me. And uh, Liam will step out of the Tesla in which he's recording this. (laughs) (laughs) Take care. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And that's it. Thanks for listening to Gimme Shelter, CalMatters, uh, California Housing Crisis Podcast. Uh, again, I'm Matt Levin. You can find some of, more of my work at calmatters.org and at mlevinreports on Twitter. And I'm Liam Dillon with the LA Times, latimes.com. And I'm on Twitter at, at Dylan Liam. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>